Well, thank you for a further opportunity to share with you uh, around the Word of God tonight and for your warm fellowship and welcome again this evening. Now, this morning, if you were here, we looked at the categories of real and fake Christianity. We looked at authentic Christianity. And I want to really just take that theme a little further tonight. Uh, I think we are living in times when it, it, it is vitally important for us as Christian people to be clear about what authentic Christianity looks like. Uh, there are so many pseudo-versions and so many apparent shades of grey in terms of what constitutes Christianity. And we really do need, as the people of God, I think, to, to be clear in our minds about what constitutes biblical Christianity. Uh, and the way that we discover that is in the Word of God, of course, and primarily in the Book of Acts. And actually, the Book of Acts is a tremendous book for times like this. Multiculturalism, paganism, opposition to the gospel, persecution, a whole stack of other relevant themes that confronted the early believers back then and are increasingly confronting us today. So we're going to look tonight at chapter 11 and we're going to look at the very first Christians. So Acts chapter 11 verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. This is God's word to us this evening. Let's pray briefly. May the words I speak draw us to the living word himself, the Lord Jesus. And as we allow his word to permeate our hearts, we ask that you will write his word upon our hearts, that your word, our Father, may become indelibly part of who we are, that it may be our defining feature. And so we ask now as we consider your word together that you will help us by your spirit to hear what you are saying to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I know, I need to switch it on. I do need to switch it on, don't I?
There we are, right, see. I, uh, I, there we go. The English language contains, by a moderate calculation, around a quarter of a million words. Uh, new words are being added to that list all the time. We're familiar with that. When I was at school, there was no such word as internet uh, or selfie, for that matter. Uh, but nowadays, it's hard to imagine a world without those words. Uh, in 2018, around 1,000 new words were added to the Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, these were three or, or four that caught my imagination. Um, Kila, uh, that's a great Scrabble word, by the way, just those of you who are addicts, a bit like me. Um, it means fortress. Um, blonk, a good word. A jailbird idiot in Australian urban jargon, apparently. Uh, YouTuber is now an official word in the English dictionary. Uh, and of course, Brexit, where would we be without that in any conversation these days? But back in the first century, in AD 60, if there had been an Oxford English dictionary, at least one new word would have had to be added. The word Christian. Now, just as it's difficult for us to imagine a world without the word internet or selfie, so it's hard to imagine a world without the word a world without the word Christian, isn't it? What would a world look like without the word Christian in it? And yet, before the events of Acts 11 that we've read this evening, there was no such word. It didn't exist. Elsewhere, followers of Jesus were described in other ways. In Acts itself, they're described as believers, saints, the church, followers of the way, the sect of the Nazarenes, and perhaps most frequently, disciples. What's interesting about this incident in Antioch is that the word Christian wasn't used as a collective noun at all. It was used as an adjective to describe this group of people who seemed to the Antiochians obsessed with the worship of Christ. Now, it could be that in their satire and sarcasm, the Antiochians were comparing the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ to a group that they had already nicknamed, we know from history, the Augustinians, people who were obsessed with the worship of the cult of Nero Augustus. And they may have seen in this group another group who were obsessed with another king, one Christ, the Messiah. We don't know, but in any event, the nickname is interesting and informative. It tells us something about these believers, and it tells, them, it tells us something about how they were viewed by the people in their culture who saw them in action every day. So what were the distinctive marks of these individuals? What were the features that marked these people as different? Because if we can identify these, then we will be able to identify the essence of an authentic Christian lifestyle, of the kind of lifestyle that led pagans to create a new word to describe it, because they'd never seen anything like it before. 
What did Christ's ones, which is what the word literally means, what did Christ's ones look like back then? Because if we can identify what marked them back then as being unique and distinctive, then we will discover that they're the same things that should still mark Christ ones today. Would that be fair? So here is a cosmopolitan commercial metropolis of around 300,000 people, Antioch, about five times the size of Hamilton, twice the size of Dundee, if you want some kind of context. As a major trading centre, people were used to new things there. It was an innovation centre, in that sense quite like Dundee, the city of discovery. And it was placed strategically, ideally, to become the birthplace of a Christianity that was not tied to Judaism. Because that was the biggest problem facing the early Christians. It was trying to get the faith in Christ that was emerging as a body of believers to leave and cut loose from its Jewish roots and not just to be a Jewish sect, but to be something completely different. Now, of course, innovation's all very well and good, but innovation brings its problems, doesn't it? With innovation, Scotland apparently is a very innovative nation, legislatively. We're very innovative. We keep getting told that by the government, Scottish government, that is. We're very innovative. But with innovation comes all sorts of moral muck. That's always been the way. And here, in Antioch, the city of innovation, came all the moral muck of cult prostitution at Daphne's shrine. Together with that, there was a, a whole moral openness to non-traditional ways of doing things, much as there is in our culture today. Who wants to be traditional? You can reinvent almost anything you want in Scotland today and be whatever you want and whoever you want and however you want. There's a real openness to non-traditional ways of doing things. And that was also the case in Antioch. What we need to discover is that that kind of culture is not opposed to the gospel, as we may think it is. It's actually a gift to the gospel, that kind of culture. And it was into this culture that came a number of refugee believers. Now, they were running for their lives for persecution. And they were anonymous, these believers. They they hadn't been brought up in Antioch's culture. They'd come from elsewhere. And that's significant too. They're anonymous in this text. We're not told their names. You see, you don't have to be a Barnabas or a Saul or a Paul to be effective in sharing the gospel. Some radicals had shared the gospel with people who were supposed to not be interested in Antioch. They didn't know any better. They were used to sharing the gospel. These were non-religious people, pagan Gentiles. They weren't part of the Jewish community. Paul often went to the synagogue. But these people coming from all over the place, they didn't go to the synagogue. They just shared the gospel with everyone. People who were not meant to be part of the deal. Gentiles. And look what happened in verse 21. It's remarkable. The Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So here was these people from Cyprus and Cyrene. They end up in Antioch. They begin to speak to Greeks who are pagans. 
They tell them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Why are we surprised? The gospel's powerful in a pagan culture where people are open to new ideas and doing things differently. Now here is the first mark of a Christian. People turned to the Lord. Do you notice in verse 21, a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. There's the first mark of a Christian. And this is a common descriptor of what it means to be a Christian in the New Testament. In 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, Paul himself describes the believers there in Thessalonica as having turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, having turned to God from idols. Do you see this turning to the Lord? A characteristic feature of first century Christianity and therefore a characteristic feature of all Christianity that is true and authentic. You see, you can't bear the name Christian unless you have turned to the Lord. It was the turning to the Lord and the worship of Christ himself that made these onlookers think these are Christ's ones. We'll give them a nickname. Now, they turned to the Lord not in a vague way, not in some kind of esoteric existential way, but in a very specific way. Do you notice in verse 21, it tells us that specific way. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So it wasn't a turning to the Lord with a mindless sense of aimlessness. This was an intentional turning to the Lord with intentional belief. They believed something. And this belief caused them to change the very direction and priorities and goals of their entire lives. So you see, to be a Christian in first century language, in Antioch, meant to be living your life facing God. To be turned towards God all the time. To be orientated towards him, not away from him. You see, to turn away from God is our natural modus operandi. That's the way we default to left to ourselves. We turn away naturally from God. It's more comfortable that way. It's less challenging to our self-obsessed lifestyle. It's less challenging to our sinful behaviors. To shut him out, to go our own way, to live as though he didn't exist, or if he did exist, that we'll pay him lip service and keep him happy on the fringe. But to become a Christian isn't to live like that. To be Christian is to believe the truth about Jesus, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the King, the Lord, and to turn to him, to have him change and reorientate your whole life, to have him as the goal and the focus of your life, what John Piper calls a glorious obsession. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what these pagans in Antioch saw in this community of believers. And so the question comes to us tonight. What do others see when they look at you? What glorious obsession would they attribute to you? But these people didn't, but, but, but these individuals didn't just see people who had believed and turned their lives around to the Lord. There were many new ideas in Antioch. 
New ideas came and went like the tide, just as they do in our culture. Today, these people would be Christian. Tomorrow, a new idea would come along and they might be something else. Something more interesting, something more attractive, something more personally valuable, something more less challenging potentially. Antioch was a place full of new ideas. There would be a, a, another new idea along tomorrow. Today, Christianity, tomorrow something else. This would be a phase, maybe, a season. Barnabas knew this. So when he arrived, he was very anxious to impress upon the new believers the second mark of true Christians. And you'll discover that with me in verse 23. Verse 23, we discover that Barnabas came, saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad, and look at the end of that verse, he encouraged them all to do what? To remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. To remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Christians aren't people who believe in the Lord and turn to him at one point in their life, in the past, and then turn away from him and cease to believe later or become unidentifiable as Christians. Christians are people who continue to believe. They continue to believe. They continue to have their life turned towards God. He remains the glorious obsession of their life all through their life. They remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. Now, in evangelicalism in our part of the world, we place a great emphasis on believing. And rightly so. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And we, we encourage people and we plead with people and we preach to people and we share with people and we, we, we encourage them to believe and we explain to them why they ought to believe. And once they believe, they're in. What next? For as long as we place an overemphasis on praying the sinner's prayer, we will fall short of what the New Testament expects of us in terms of what a Christian life looks like. The only way I want to suggest to you tonight, the only way we have of assessing whether a profession of faith is real is the degree to which that person remains true to the Lord for the rest of their lives. To remain true to the Lord with all of your heart simply means that you live the rest of your life governed by the gospel. That's what it means to be Christian. In our church recently, we ran into some difficulties because there were people's names on the roll who hadn't been for a long time. Some of them were, had, had family, had surnames commensurate with other people in the church. But they weren't living Christian lifestyles. But their name was on the church roll. Imagine the fun when the announcement was made that those names were coming off the roll. 
Now, if that was you and it was your child or it was your son or it was your daughter, I can understand the emotional pain of that. But Christianity isn't about sentimentality, folks. Christian uh, Heaven isn't a place where you go to meet your family who have died ahead of you. There are no family relationships in heaven. Not in that sense. Christians, heaven's not about your family. Heaven's about the Lord Jesus. It's about the Christian community. Together, all of us, equal. And, and we cannot allow sentimentality to govern our thinking in these areas. People brought up in Christian families abandon the faith. That's the tragic truth. And it doesn't mean you were a bad parent, necessarily. It doesn't mean that it's your fault. The matters of salvation in families, just as anywhere else, lie in the hands of God himself. But the only measure, I say again, that we have to establish whether someone is genuine, and, and, and even at that we may not know, I understand that the Lord is the judge at the end of the day, but the only measure we have is for those who endure to the end. Jesus said that, didn't he? Those who endure to the end will be saved. So professing is not enough. Remaining true to the Lord with all of your heart is what matters. And to live any other way will not identify you as a Christian to the watching world. I heard a story that was rather amusing once of a young Christian guy in a new workplace who was looking for opportunities to share his faith. And after a period, he thought he'd found it when one of his colleagues asked him if he could go to lunch with him because he'd noticed something about him that he wanted to discuss in a private place. So on the day, the guy got up and very excited, prayed that he would not let the Lord down and he would have an opportunity to share his faith. And so the time came, they sat down together, the Christian guy was excited, expecting the other person might want to ask him about his faith. But imagine his disappointment when the colleague said to him, do you know, I've been watching you for a while. You vegetarian. <laughs> do you see, the distinctive marks of our lives are not always as obvious to others as we may think they are. If others don't see Jesus as the reason for us being different, they won't identify us as being Christian. They might just identify us as being a bit different and a bit weird, and they might not know why. Remaining true to the Lord with all of your heart is a lifetime work. But that is the Christian commitment, isn't it? I read a quote recently from uh, John Piper, whom I've mentioned earlier, about the struggle that proves the reality of faith. The life struggle, because it is a struggle. At least it is for me. A Christian is not a person, says Piper, who experiences no bad desires. A Christian is a person who is at war with those desires by the power of the Spirit. Even though we long for the day when our flesh will be utterly defunct and only pure and loving desires will fill our hearts, yet there is something worse than the war between the flesh and the Spirit and that is namely no war within, because the flesh controls the citadel and all the outposts of our heart. Praise God for the war within, says Piper. The Spirit has landed in your life to do battle with the flesh. So take heart 
if you if your soul feels like a battlefield the sign of whether you are indwelt by the spirit is not that you have no bad desires but that you are constantly at war with them now i can relate to that every day so let me ask you this evening Are you remaining true to the Lord with all of your heart? Do you sense something of that battle to persevere and keep going right through to the end of your life? What an encouragement it is when we see people like Mrs. Biggart, isn't that true? Who get right through their life remaining faithful to the Lord. What an inspiration that is to people. What an inspiration it is to people like me and to children and grandchildren. That's the calling. And remember those words of Jesus. Let them echo in your heart. In Matthew 24, 13. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Not the one who starts with a bang. The one who endures to the end. So the second mark of a Christian is to remain true. What's the third mark? The third mark of the Christian is that they gather to be taught about the Lord. We discover that in verse 26. Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Now we know already in Acts, Luke has told us in in chapter 2, that the early church is described as devoting themselves to this kind of thing. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So it's no surprise that as the pagans in Antioch looked on, they saw this devotion as the believers gathered together to be taught. You see, you can't do Christianity without being taught the Bible. You just can't do it. That's why you can't do Christianity on your own. Being taught in the New Testament meant being together with God's people under the authority and teaching of a preacher. Now, you see, in our world, it becomes a bit more complicated, doesn't it? Because I listen to Ali Begg on YouTube, and many others do, and many others too. And I've spoken to loads of people who just kind of dip in and out of church And they say, well, I've got my own version of things, David. You know, I just check into songs of praise on a Sunday and a bit of so-and-so on the internet. And, you know, I, I live stream Brooklyn Tabernacle and I enjoy the praise or whatever it happens to be. But listen, that's not authentic New Testament Christianity. Authentic New Testament Christianity is what we are doing tonight. Gathering together to hear God's word. Sitting under the authority of that word. Allowing the authority of that word to radically impact on our lives. Enjoying the fellowship of one another, being together with the people of God, sharing that common experience, and together gaining strength from one another and from the word to go back out there and share the gospel. These are the marks of a true Christian. But this passage doesn't only provide us with the marks of a Christian. It actually provides us with a model Christian. A Christian in action who demonstrates all these things perfectly. And his name is Barnabas. Barnabas is one of the unsung heroes in the New Testament church. His name itself is quite interesting. In Greek, it literally translates as the son of Paraclesis. Literally, the son of comfort or the son of 
exhortation. But the interesting thing is that the root word paraclesis is related to the word used by Jesus in John chapter 14 to describe the Holy Spirit. The paraclete, the helper, the one who will come to bring comfort. Do you remember that verse? I will ask the Father and he will give you another paraclete, another helper, another comforter to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. So that's where Barnabas's name comes from. This idea of helping, comforting, coming alongside to support. What a wonderful, what a wonderful name to have. And in, in verse 24, Barnabas is described in three ways to us. Each of them characteristic of how a model Christian behaves. Firstly then, we discover that Barnabas was a good man. He was marked by goodness. Verse 24 tells us he was a good man. How straightforward, how matter of fact. That's a kind of good West of Scotland phrase, wouldn't it be? Yeah, he's a good man, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. Good people are people of integrity. They refuse to compromise their principles to achieve their goals. They don't lie to suit their own agenda. They don't manipulate people for their own ends. They don't crush others to rise to the top. They don't use people and drop them like hot potatoes. They say sorry when they're wrong. And we need good people in Christian leadership today, don't we? We need good people. Not just talented people or gifted people. But good people. Good in this way. It's one of the weaknesses of modern evangelicalism that we often overlook serious character flaws in charismatic leaders, often because they're gifted or they're, or, or, or they're talented or they deliver results of some kind. But if bad people stand for the right message and end up influencing people, these people may actually end up rejecting the gospel. That's what's at stake here. Those who are publicly trusted to stand for the gospel must be people of personal integrity. They must be good people. That's why the church in Jerusalem chose Barnabas to go to Antioch. He was a man full of integrity. He was a good man. Secondly, he was a man of deep spirituality. You notice that in verse 24, not only was he a good man, but he was full of the Holy Spirit. We've already noticed that his name links him to the Holy Spirit as a comforter, a helper, an exhorter, an encourager. And what a helper and encourager he was. We've already seen the focus of his encouragement here, that others would remain true to the Lord. He encouraged people to keep going to the end of their lives, uh, following in the Christian way. But think of this, he was an encouragement to Saul too. Indeed, his spiritual humility drove him to travel 100 miles to bring Saul to Antioch to help him with the teaching ministry. Now that's remarkable. Never underestimate how hard it was for the Christian church to accept Saul of Tarsus into their midst. Saul of Tarsus was a Christian killer. He was an assassin of Christians. Well known as such. And now he's professing faith in Christ? What mysterious stuff is this? 
Is he trying to infiltrate us so that he can kill more of us to find out where we hide, to find out where we meet, to find out what we think, to find out what we do? Would you have trusted him with your congregation? Barnabas did. Barnabas did. He went and got the newly converted Saul and he brought him to Antioch to help him with the teaching ministry, even although Barnabas himself didn't have that kind of history. He knew his limitations. And he recognized gift in others. And significantly, he also embraced the movement of the gospel into non-Jewish territory. Not all Jewish believers got that. Peter struggled with it, as we know, and many of the others. Barnabas was generous and kind, a deep spiritual man and he is a role model here of practical spirituality in action this is what being filled with the Holy Spirit looks like thirdly he was a man of faith it's there on the surface of the text he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith Barnabas's faith was exemplary we actually first encounter him in chapter 4 of Acts, where he sells his land and gives the proceeds of that land to meet the needs of the poor. And unlike Ananias and Sapphira, he didn't tell a lie about what he'd done. What he got, he gave. He had faith in God's provision. And then in Acts 9.26, we discover, as I've already mentioned, uh, we discover him having the courage to risk supporting Saul of Tarsus when others are terrified of him. He had faith in God's ability to change an assassin into an apostle. So he had faith in God, that's for sure. But he also had faith in God's people. To Barnabas, ultimately had faith in the promises of God. He had faith in God delivering on what he had said he would do. He had faith in the promises of what God's grace can do in the lives of people. He didn't give up on people. He had a vision of grace that saw beyond the darkness. He believed the promise of God and therefore he wanted to be an agent of those promises and an agent of that grace in the lives of others. And so must we. We mustn't give up on people. Even when they're struggling. Even when they fall. We may not elevate them back to leadership. But we mustn't give up on them. We must pray for them. We must meet with them. We must plead with them. We must challenge them. We must do this believing that God can transform them. And that he can transform us with them. Into people of integrity that can be of use in his kingdom. We need to fight cynicism with faith. Barnabas was the antithesis of, cyn of, of cynicism. He was trusting. He was believing in the promises of God and in the gospel itself to effect transformation. He had great confidence in the gospel and in the God of the gospel. And God's promises challenge our cynicism, don't they? They encourage us, like Barnabas did, to believe that grace can change people like us and make us Christ's ones. So much Christ's ones 
that when others look at us in our culture, they'll identify us as Christians. And they may just call us Christians too. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that the, the word Christian has become greatly devalued in our, in our world. Much is done in the name of Christ that owes little to him or his kingdom. We pray that as we've revisited the basic principles of what this name means and how it came about, that you will help us not to be so much concerned as to whether we're identified by the name, but by the behavior, the lifestyle, and the marks of what it means to be one of Christ's ones. And we pray that above all, our Christian commitment might be a commitment to Christ himself above all else. And we pray that you will help us to persevere in that commitment for the rest of our lives. For the glory of your name, and the extension of your kingdom, we pray. Amen.